Hey guys, welcome back to Fiction Fixation. We're your hosts. I'm Courtney. And I'm Rose. And this week we're going to be recapping the 1999 crime thriller Double Jeopardy starring Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones. Do you know that this is one of my favorite movies of all time? Really? I have never seen it before. And when I say it's one of my favorite movies, I mean, I watched it once and I loved it and I haven't watched it again since (laughs) like just now because I can't rewatch movies, but it's been in my, in my heart. I love this movie. So Libby Parsons, played by Ashley Judd, is at a party for her best friend, Angie, with her husband, Mm -hmm. Nick. Angie and Nick take Libby out onto this deck to show her the sailboat that Nick has bought in for Libby. I don't know exactly what Nick does for a living. It's a little confusing because you could tell they have money, but yet... Not sailboat money. Not sailboat money. 1999 was a very good time to be ambiguously rich. It was. It It really was. Speaking of Y2K, I was telling Frank the other day, I really want to live to the year 2100. So Mm. then I will have seen three centuries. Wow. Okay. It's a lofty goal. Yeah. I should probably quit vaping and drinking. (laughs) Um, You should probably go for a walk once in a while. I worked at assisted living. The people that I saw that were healthy into their 90s were people that went out for walks every day. I think about it all the time as I don't go for walks every day. You know what? I'll only be like 111. Like That's not like that lofty of a goal. You know what I mean? Do you know life expectancy for women in America is like 78? So a little bit loftier than that. A little bit loftier than that. (laughs) We don't know what Nick does for a living, but he seems to be doing well for himself. And yet the first thing Libby says is we can't afford this. But she says it not in the angry wife way. She says it with like wonder in her eyes. She's so happy that he got it for her because it's her dream. And then she also doesn't ask questions when he says we can't afford it. Her next question is, what are we going to do with Maddie, their young son? He's like, what, four? And Angie says, I'll take care of him while you guys go out on the boat and have a good time. Yeah. Angie's over here on the sidelines just cheering for her friend like, yay, you got a sailboat and immediately volunteers to watch her son, which let me tell you, four-year-olds, you couldn't pay me to watch a four-year-old. Four-year-olds are straight up sociopaths. I agree that four-year-olds are tiny little terrorists, but they're Mm -hmm. so cute. That's the problem is that they're still adorable at four. There is something about a miniature version of anything, right? Think like if you saw a miniature version of a nuclear bomb, you would be like, oh my goodness gracious, it's so adorable. Like there's just something about miniature things. That's why toddlers get away with things that teenagers do not because their teenagers are not little anymore. They lost their cuteness. Could you imagine if teenagers were still as adorable as toddlers? The world would be on fire because we would let them get away with too much. I have a theory that babies have to be so cute so their mommies don't punt them out windows. The cuter the baby, the more annoying that baby probably is. If there's an ugly baby, that is probably the best baby in the world. Right, because they can't afford to act up. They can't afford to express their emotions because they're (laughs) ugly. And their mommies would just toss them. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Anyways, so Nick and Libby... They go out on this magical night on their sailboat. It's amazing. You know, they have dinner and it's just, it's like a date night on a fucking sailboat. Like, you know, he's getting laid. They do knock the boots, but then also, I listen, I'm not a water person. I get seasick, but I just watched a compilation of videos of the ocean turning over giant boats. And so I really don't understand the appeal of taking this like little ricketing boat out into the massive ocean. Orcas are eating rich people and sinking yachts. 
So they're living the dream, to be honest. I wish I was an orca. You know what? I saw this thing about how orcas sunk this yacht, but no rich people were on there, only the crew. And the orca didn't eat the crew. They just sunk the yacht. So like (laughs) they are discriminating. The orcas are like, "Mm, that tastes like Aldi. I ain't touching it. I'm on a diet. I'm on a rich people diet. Yes. The orcas are eating the rich. I love that for them. And so that's what Libby and her husband, Nick, do. They take this sailboat out into the Pacific Ocean. So after this wonderful night, Libby wakes up in the sleeping quarters on the bed Mm -hmm. and her husband is gone. She starts to get worried. She starts to call for her her husband because there's blood everywhere. There's blood on the floor. There's a trail of blood leading up the stairs onto the deck. There's blood fucking everywhere, man. There's a lot of blood. And she follows the trail of blood to the deck of the boat, to the railing. And there's a knife there. And the first thing she does is pick it up like she's never seen an episode of CSI. Just puts her fingerprints all over that knife. Yeah. As soon as this bitch picks up that knife, okay, as soon as she picks it up, Coast Guard comes in spotlight. Ma'am, put the knife down. I thought the very next scene was going to be her in an interrogation room, but it's not. It's her like on a beach waiting for an update on whether or not they found her husband. And she is saying like, he's a very strong swimmer. He's out there. He has to be out there. Yeah. She's like, no, you need to find him. Keep checking. Keep checking. And they're like, ma'am, this water is freezing. Like Mm -hmm. your husband's dead AF. All right. If the stab wounds didn't kill him, the cold in the water did. How rich was your husband, ma'am? Because Orca's out here just num numbing mm-hmm. on all the rich guys. Well, you know what? This was 1999. So this was before the Orcas were eating the rich people. OK, gotcha. Yeah, because it's all it's because of the whole SeaWorld thing that they mm-hmm. have this anger. They echo communicated from SeaWorld to the ocean to tell them, eat these bitches. Dude, what if we like track the money and the people that the orcas are eating are the people who funded SeaWorld? Ooh. Someone investigate. I really want that to be true. I would love for that to have happened. Um, (laughs) I really want that for the orcas. So things are not looking too good for Libby, right? Because not only was she found with a knife in her hand and blood of presumably the blood that was on the boat is her husband's blood. Mm -hmm. And now he's gone. So lo and behold, she's charged with murder. Yeah. So her family attorney comes over and talks with her and they play her husband's SOS call. And her husband just keeps saying, I've been stabbed. I've been stabbed. I've been stabbed. So the thing is, Libby had motive to kill her husband because he was being sued for embezzlement and they were getting ready to lose everything. But they both had a $2 million life policy. He had a $2 million life insurance policy that he took out on himself. But also, Libby didn't know that he was being sued. So he was being sued by two different investors for embezzlement, for his ambiguous richness, and they were about to lose everything. And so this just makes her look like she killed him for the insurance money, which, listen, it does happen. Also, I think with most life insurance policies, if you're murdered, your policy doubles. So this is what's confusing, right? Libby is found guilty of murdering her husband. She's sentenced to, I don't even know how many years in prison. A lot. 
that's that's the official that's what the judge said. You are sentenced to a lot of years in prison. <laughs> Many years. Years AF in prison. <laughs> Many years. But here's what confuses me, right? So Libby asks her best friend, remember Angela, mm-hmm. Angie. Libby asks Angie, please adopt my son, take care of my son. The life insurance policy is going to be in a trust for him. And mm-hmm. I was wondering, like, wait a minute, this insurance company paid out the policy? Yeah, the life insurance company paid out the policy because he was presumed dead. They wouldn't have paid it to her if she was convicted mm-hmm. of his murder. But since it was going to the son and he was still a beneficiary, then yeah, they would still pay it to him. Okay. Libby is still insisting that she's innocent. She's like, I didn't kill my husband. Like, she doesn't know what happened. But the jury didn't think so, and the jury convicted her. Libby just spends her, like, first night in prison just sobbing. Libby's friend Angela does bring the son to come visit. And I think they have one meeting. And Mm -hmm. then... Angela just disappears with Libby's son. Like Libby can't get a hold of her. Yeah, the number that Libby has for Angela is not working anymore. Libby hasn't seen her son in months. And there are two other women in prison that kind of seem to take pity on her and take her under their wing a little bit. Libby's kind of sulking. She doesn't know what's going on. And one of Libby's friends in prison is like, you're not dumb. Figure it out. Yeah. She's like, people don't just disappear. There has to be a way for you to figure out where she is. Libby has this bright idea. She calls Angie's old job and says, hey, it's Angela Green. I haven't been getting my severance checks. I just want to make sure you have my right mailing address and phone number. Can you confirm those for me? Mm-hmm. Turns out Angie, whole up ass, moved out of state. She moved from Washington State to San Francisco. Yes, with Libby's son without telling her. Obviously, this is super weird and sus. Libby is able to track down Angie's new address and gets a phone number for it. However, I just want to say something real quick. I don't know if things were different in 1999, but it seems like Libby can call people from jail and there's no buffer. Because you know how like nowadays they'll be like, you're getting a call from an inmate at such and such prison. Like that doesn't seem to happen. She seems to be able to call people Mm -hmm. directly. I think maybe that only happens if you're accepting a collect call and they don't have minutes. So if you're Mm -hmm. paying for the phone call. Okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't get phone calls from jail. So Libby immediately calls Angela's new number. Angie answers and Libby's like, hey, bitch, ring, ring. It's me. What gives? And Angie's like, oh, my God, girl, I was just getting ready to call you. (laughs) I've tried to call you so many times. And Libby's not having it. She's like, no, I don't want to hear your bullshit. Put my son on the phone. Libby gets to talk to her son who, oh, my God, again, he's so cute. He's little. He doesn't know what's going on. He's talking to his mom. Everything is fine. We are seeing both ends of the conversation. And so we see someone walking into the apartment where the son is on the phone. Mm Mm-hmm. But all Libby hears is her son saying, Daddy. Yeah, it's Daddy. Nick walks in holding a fire truck toy for freaking little baby Maddie. And Angie is frantically pointing to the phone saying, it's Libby. Nick just goes over and yanks the whole phone out of the wall. Libby's in jail and it's like her world is closing in around her because she starts to realize, oh my God. He's not dead. Libby's bright idea after this is she calls the life insurance company and tells them, hey, I don't think he's actually dead. You should probably put your investigators on this. Here's an address. 
and a phone number. You should check it out. And they're like, okay, well, of course you don't want him to be dead. You're in prison for his murder. Yeah, they don't believe her. Yeah, they just dismiss her. And one of her friends in prison, this friend used to be a lawyer before she Mm -hmm. was in prison. She tells her, listen, jailhouse reprieves and stuff like that are only successful 5% of the time and only after so many years. So listen, trying to get proven innocent while you're in here is futile. Don't do it. But here's what I'm saying. If you think your husband's alive, do your time. And when you get out, you can walk right up to him in the middle of Times Square, put a gun to his head and shoot him. They can't do a damn thing about it because of this little thing called double jeopardy. You can't be tried for the same crime twice. And you've already been convicted of your husband's murder. This really spurs Libby into like, it really reminded me of that time in Mulan where the Make a Man Out of You song comes in. Yes, that's so true. So she just starts working out, man. Girl is fueled by rage. One of the prison guards even says that like, girl, hatred is just driving you right now. She's out there running in the rain. She's working out. She's lifting weights. She starts working out hardcore. She does this for seven years. So she's uh-huh. in incredible shape. At the seven year mark, she gets to meet with the parole board and her friend, mm-hmm. who again used to be a, a lawyer before she murdered someone. They apparently don't let you keep your license if you murder people. They do not. The ex lawyer coaches her on what to say. She's like, don't talk about how you're innocent. Don't give them all of this. I'm a changed person, whatever. She's like, you know, you're going to tell them you can't prove that you changed. All you can do is live a better life and prove it to yourself every day. And then in turn, prove it to them by being a better person. With this coaching and everything, Libby does in fact get parole. It's a three-year parole sentence. I have a question. So what does this mean? Does this mean that after three years, she's going to be a free woman? No. So it's probably three years supervised parole like this, which means... Essentially, for three years, she will live in this home with the supervision of her parole officer. And like Tommy Lee Jones, her parole officer, he explains to her she will find gainful employment. She will stay away from drugs and alcohol. She will have a curfew. She will not own or have possession of a weapon. And after that three-year mark, then she goes to unsupervised parole, in which case She's on parole for another set number of years. Um, and then after that, she's free. Yes. So Libby is living with other parolees and mm-hmm. the parole officer, Tommy Lee Jones. He's a hard ass. OK, he tells Libby, like, you stick one foot out of line. I'll drive you back to prison myself. Like he ain't messing around. He goes through her box that she brings with her, which essentially has her five items of clothing that she has and a picture of her son. He pulls out the picture of her son and he goes, will this be a problem for you? And she says, no, um, it's going to be a problem. (laughs) It is going to be a problem because Libby's goal on parole, she's trying to track down her son. Okay, so one of the very first things she does is she goes to the library to do some research. She prints out a list of all the teachers because Angela used to be a teacher. She prints out a list of all the teachers with Angela's name. So there's a lot. There's like 108 teachers with Angela's name. And so she she can't find like which one is Angela she's not sure well because she knows that Angela was a teacher and doesn't she know Mm. where Angela used to work she knows where Angela used to work yeah she 
does. And she goes there and she talks to somebody and she's like, hey, listen, I just need an address for Angie. I just want to see Maddie. The lady there says, I can't help you. If you go see Angie, you're just going to be hurting Maddie and I won't give it to you. Listen, Libby is not messing around, okay? She decides to do a little B&E, just a smidge of breaking and entering. She goes back to the school in the middle of the night. Libby gets this paper that has Angela's forwarding address on it from a filing cabinet and she gets out just in time because the police break in and it turns into a hot pursuit, kind Uh of an epic chase. And Libby's in shape, dude. She like scales a fence. All of that jailhouse working out, she's nimble. She's limber. She can bob and weave, okay? She's running on sand. Do you see how that girl is booking it on sand? I don't understand why she runs straight to the beach. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen because it's so hard to run on sand. It's so hard. It's so hard, but that girl is booking it, man. All right. That girl is booking it and Deputy Donut behind her is just not keeping up. They finally tackle her Mm -hmm. and take her to jail. Her parole officer comes up to the jailhouse to get her. And he's like, you have a good time at the beach. He had already been looking for her because she missed curfew. Now he's picking her up from jail and essentially... He's scolding her and he's like, you're an idiot. All you had to do Mm -hmm. is follow the rules for a couple years and then you could have seen your son. And now I have to drive you back to prison. Yeah. And she's like, I've already waited six years to see my son. Yeah. Libby tries to tell the parole officer like what's going on. And he's just like, sure, 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 hon. Yes. This whole elaborate plot of your husband faking his death and running off with your best friend totally makes sense. Yeah. He's like, it's much more likely that you killed your husband and you just wanted to, you just want to see your son. I get it. The parole officer used to be a college law professor. He got a DUI and then his wife dipped with their daughter and he never gets to see her now. So they both have something in common where Mm -hmm. they they messed up, although Mm -hmm. Libby didn't do anything wrong. We know that. But I think the parole officer does empathize with her. However, Mm -hmm. he's still taking her ass to prison. Yeah, he's like, I have a job to do. So they get on a ferry. They get on a ferry in a car. They do that thing where they like drive the car onto the ferry. They get on a ferry in a car. He handcuffs her to the outside door. And then he's like, you stay here. I'm going to go get coffee. Livy has no intention on going back to prison. At this point, she's just like, I've got nothing to lose. The parole officer left the key in the car. He was not worried about her going anywhere because they're on a ferry. But she uses the key to start the car and jam her handcuff against like this metal thing on the ferry. In the process, she knocks two cars onto the ocean. Nobody seems to bat a fucking eyelash at this point. No one's noticing this. When the parole officer notices what she's doing, he runs after her and jumps in the car and she just drives the car straight forward into the ocean. Now they're sinking. Yeah, they're sinking really fast into the ocean and she's handcuffed to the car. So she's going to die. And now the parole officer has to get his key underwater and unlock her handcuff underwater just so that she doesn't die. So he's risking his life to save hers. Mm -hmm. I don't know, girl. This was not like she didn't think this through very well. You know, what if he just let her die? Did she think that through? The thing is, like, what was she trying? Like, where was she going to go? Even if she got out there on a ferry? I think she planned on swimming. I don't understand swimming as a concept because I am never able to propel myself. So like I'll be underwater and girl, I'm like kicking my feet. I'm moving my hands and I'm not I'm not propelling myself anywhere. I'm like in the same spot. 
yeah, I don't get I don't get the concept of swimming. Huh, I love swimming. I can't. So you move? You move, move in the water? I do. <laughs> Dude, I can't move in the water. I think you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> my, I might be doing it wrong. Can you? Can your family members swim? You know what's crazy? My little sister and my brother, they both insist that I taught them how to swim. And they're wow. really good swimmers. Yeah. And I don't, I have no memory of this. I feel like I was like Jason Bourne before the age of nine. And I like knew how to do all this cool stuff and I don't know how to do it anymore. Oh, wow. Wild. That's for my therapist. That's not for yeah. you guys. So what happens is the parole officer unlocks her handcuff. Okay. She grabs his gun. They swim to the surface. The crew on the ferry tosses life preservers to them. The parole officer tries to grab her. She hits him in the head with the gun. Mm -hmm. He swims to a life preserver. And that bitch just swims to the other side of the sound. Yeah. So she gets back on shore. Now Mm -hmm. Libby is a fugitive. Libby hitchhikes with some truckers to her mother's house. Libby has sort of an estranged relationship with her mother, but she needs help. So she goes to mommy and mommy digs up a tin full of cash from the garden. This wad of cash that her mom hands her is about two inches thick and it looks Mm -hmm. like it's all hundreds. So it's a lot of money. Yeah. And she just hands it over to her daughter who's a fugitive. The very next scene is Libby at a car dealership. And I'm thinking like, is she really going to buy a car, like an expensive car? This is not very low profile of her. No, she's pretending to be Angie to get a forwarding address. The way she does it is she goes to this car dealership. She pretends she wants to buy a car and she tells the salesman like, hey, don't you want to run my credit and see if I can afford it? She gives the guy Angela's social security number. Yeah, he goes and he's like, you said your name was Angela Green. This is Angela Ryder. She's like, oh, yeah, Green Ryder. Thank you. And they're like, what about the car? She's like, gotta go. Bye. Yeah. So now she has a new address for Angela. So Libby goes to where Angela's house is supposed to be. And Mm -hmm. it's this neighborhood with million dollar homes. Libby goes and knocks on what was supposed to be Angela's house. And she finds out that this family just moved in a few months ago. And then a neighbor tells Libby Angela actually died. She died in a house fire. Yeah. So when Libby goes to the library to, these were the days, you remember going to the library to do research? Uh Uh-huh. Oh my gosh. Do you remember the door-to-door encyclopedia salesman? Yes. They were in a rush because they knew that the internet was going to make encyclopedias obsolete. Obsolete. Also, encyclopedias were not considered scholarly sources. They weren't? They were not. It was like an MLM scheme that was happening in the 90s where like these guys were just going around selling people encyclopedias, telling mothers that this is what their kids needed for school. Do you want little dumbass kids? Or do you want kids that orcas want to eat? Because that's the goals. That's the American dream. Mm. Didn't you come to this country for your kid to grow up to be someone an orca wants to eat? Do you want your kids to go to college or do you want your kids to go to jail? Did you come to this country for your kids to go to jail? Those are the only two options. Those literally, as a millennial, were the only two options. It was like, Mm -hmm. you either go to college or you go to jail. Okay, you either get into an insane amount of debt at the age of 17 or you go to jail. Which one will it be? Oh, you forgot about military. That was always an option, too. Oh, yeah. Military was an option. And then we become adults and we're like, wait a minute. There are other jobs. There's another option. Trades. There's other options. (laughs) 
So Libby, she goes to the library, okay, and she's looking at the news article from the house fire that killed Angie. And as she's looking at the article, she sees in the background a piece of a painting. And it was from an artist that her husband was obsessed with. And she realizes like, oh, my husband finally had the money to buy all those fancy paintings that he was insufferable about. Things start to click that number one, Angela didn't die by accident. Very Mm -hmm. obviously, Nick got rid of her because maybe she was having second thoughts or she was just in the way. Like Nick is an obvious sociopath. she had a life insurance policy. Oh my God, you're so right, probably. Libby drives around town and she finds an art dealer there. And she goes and she tells him that she's looking for some a very specific artist and a very specific series of his paintings. He's going through all of them and she's like, that one right there. The parole officer is hot on Libby's trail. So he has mm-hmm. been kind of right behind her. So after she spoke to the neighbor where Angela used to live, the parole officer comes up and talks to the neighbor as well. And he learns what kind of car Libby is driving. So while in town, the parole officer sees Libby's truck parked outside of the art dealer. The parole officer is now at the art dealer. Not only is he at the art dealer, but he parked directly behind the truck. Right as the art dealer is getting ready to pull up, who else they sold that painting to, the parole officer comes in to ask the art dealer some questions. Libby hears the parole officer's voice and she's like, oh shit. So she gets on the computer and finds out that they also sold it to a Jonathan Devereaux right after the house fire. So she's like, bingo, gotcha, bitch. And then she ditches out the window. When she gets in her truck, obviously she can't get out because the parole officer parked right behind her, but that's not a problem. She rams it out of the way and just rams whatever else is in the way to get away. A payphone. (laughs) Yeah, she rams a payphone. Jonathan Devereaux is apparently this very wealthy man in New Orleans. So Libby books a flight, heads to New Orleans. Side note, this is a fugitive that can just book a flight. Okay, 1999, wild times. I'm not sure how this works, but to be completely honest, no one's stopping her from doing anything, but whatevs. She books a flight, goes to New Orleans, and she goes directly to the address that was in the file, which turns out to be a little hotel. This hotel that Jonathan Devereaux owns, Jonathan Devereaux is obviously Nick Parsons, her husband who's supposed to be dead. It's it's a very fancy hotel, so he's doing very well for himself. She goes up to the front counter and she says, hi, I'd like to speak to Jonathan Devereaux. And they're like, I'm sorry, he's not here, but he'll be back this evening for the bachelor auction. Libby decides she needs to attend this bachelor auction. So Mm -hmm. Libby heads to another fancy hotel. Yeah, so she does this ingenious thing, which I don't think this would ever actually work, especially nowadays. Maybe in 1999 it would work. But she goes up to the front desk of a hotel and just sort of loiters there. And she sees this lady drop off her stuff. Here's her room number. So Libby goes to the attached boutique. She just repeats what this lady says. She's in room 1427. She gives the lady her name and says that she wants to wear Armani. That's some spy shit. I love it. Except that there's an old lady getting like defrauded here unfairly. That like leave this old lady out of it. She had nothing to do with what your ex-husband is up to. You know, that is fair. Well, anyway, moving on, what ends up happening is that Libby gets this very incredible dress. She looks like a million freaking bucks. 
it's a sleeveless dress with a scoop neckline. It kind it's giving me 1920s vibes. Oh yes, you're right. Um, so it's black and then it has silver beading all the way down, and then it has a hanging bead fringe. She looks incredible. And obviously she's Ashley Judd. So she's just a stunner. She did her hair. She did her makeup. She looks banging hot. She does. Libby sneaks into the gala. And this is again, this is like a charity auction. And it turns out her husband, Nick, Mr. Devereaux, is the first bachelor that is up for auction. Yes. And he is hosting the event. Basically, they're auctioning off a night with this bachelor. That sounds really dirty. That sounds dirty, but I think it's just like a date. He gets up there with all his douche swagger and he takes off his jacket and he has a cigar. Then he starts the auction and someone says $500 and he's like, baby, my cufflinks cost more than that. You're going to have to do better. Libby says $2,500, but he doesn't know it's Libby because she's way in the back. And then they go Mm -hmm. back and forth. And then finally, Libby says 10,000. Yeah. So he's excited because he's like, oh, man, somebody thinks I'm worth 10 grand. And so he's like, all right, honey, come on up and claim your prize. She walks up. He sees her and his face just is like, I'm in danger. Libby walks up and she tells him, aren't you going to give me a kiss? I think I've earned it. When he leans in to kiss her, she rejects him. She pulls back and everyone in the audience is like, ooh. And I just think it was very important for her to embarrass him like that. That's That was important. And then they walk off the stage together and two women stop them. They're like, hey, there seems to be a story here and we want the tea. And she's like, oh, hi, I'm Libby. I'm his wife. This is this is a lot of tea because obviously a lot. Jonathan is a, a eligible bachelor, very rich here in New Orleans. Oh, by the way, we didn't say Nick in his new persona of Jonathan has an accent, like a Cajun accent. He has that New Orleans accent, man. He's not bad at it, but he's also a fake. So there's that. You know what? I'd be really mad if I married a man with that accent just to find out he was a fucking liar. You would be more upset that the accent is fake than he has a fake identity to hide the fact that he framed his wife for his murder. You'd be like, wait, but your accent is fake. How could you do this to me? Listen, I am straight trash. I am slutty putty in the hands of the New Orleans accent, even more so for the Cajun accent. The Cajun accent is dirty French and I love it. Okay. And if I found out that he's been lying to me about that, I'm just like, how could you? Yes, I'd be more mad. I'd be more mad about that. So Libby is confronting Jonathan and she's telling him, listen, I just want my son. Okay, so give me my son and I'll let you keep your little accent and your hotel and everything you have. Like she's basically telling him, I'm not here to expose you. I just want my kid. He's like, listen, he's like, I didn't know they would convict you for my murder. I would have killed myself, but I didn't have the guts to do it. The thing with Angie came later. It was never behind your back. Bullshit. Well, yeah. And then also he murdered Angela, pretty sure. How dare you? That was an accident. That was a total accident. Yeah. And she's like, cut the bullshit. Just give me my kid. And she sees the parole officer and she's like, listen, I'll call you tomorrow. Meet (laughs) me at St. Louis Cemetery. He's like, there's people everywhere. She's like, yeah, it's full of tourists, which is why we'll blend in. Bring my kid tomorrow. Yeah. Thank you. So the parole officer is here. He followed her from Washington State Mm -hmm. to New Orleans because, again, he has been hot on her tail, finding things out right 
after she finds things out. So he goes up to this Jonathan Devereaux and he says, can you tell me why this woman thinks that you're her dead husband? Jonathan, first of all, lies and says that he's never seen her or knows her, that he's he hasn't mm-hmm. seen her there. So he lies. Jonathan is just kind of like, wow, man, that's wild. That's a crazy story. There's a lady here somewhere that wants to kill me. I'll let you know when I see her, parole officer. Also, side note, this is a parole officer. Does that mean that he's a cop or like, how does this work? Is he a police officer? It doesn't seem like he's a police officer. He's part of the police force, but like he's not like an active officer. He still has a badge and a gun. That's all you need, girl. That's all you need. Yeah. But meanwhile, the parole officer has also went to the New Orleans Police Department and was like, hey, man, lady skipped parole on me. I need to bring her in. She's here. Here's what she's looking for. I need your buddies to keep an eye out. So the whole of the New Orleans Police Department is also looking for this woman. They're passing out like her mugshot and pictures. You know, there's a reward. People are looking for her. Yeah. So the cops are looking for her. They know that there's a fugitive. And I just have to say, like with the crime rate in New Orleans, I would think that they have bigger fish to fry than a parolee who like skipped parole. Well, she is a murderer. I guess. Well, in any case, everyone's out looking for her. She manages to pull up somewhere overnight. We don't Mm -hmm. know. But the next scene, she meets Nick, aka Jonathan, at the cemetery. Outside of the cemetery, there's a lot of people. There's an active funeral happening, Mm -hmm. a procession. And New Orleans funerals are something else. New Orleans funerals are very boisterous. It's like a parade almost. You know, you have the music, you have the band, everyone walks. It's a funeral march is essentially what it is. Yeah. And then also there's like a bunch of tourists looking on, which I feel weird Mm -hmm. about. They're like, oh, my God, like we're seeing a real New Orleans funeral. Like somebody died. I don't know. But it's, it's wild. So. Nick slash Jonathan tells Libby that her son is a little skittish, a little nervous about seeing his mom and that he's somewhere in the cemetery. So she's going and calling for her son and she sees, you know, her son and he's running. And so she's kind of chasing him through the cemetery. So this cemetery that she's chasing her son through, it's not just it's not gravestones, it's mausoleums. Mm -hmm. So it's like all of these like tiny little buildings Mm -hmm. and it's pretty isolated. There's no Mm -hmm. one around. Yeah, the water table is too high in New Orleans, so they can't bury bodies underwater. Um, So they have to bury them in the mausoleums. Oh, I didn't realize that's mm-hmm. that was why. Yeah, I'll get to that. I'll go more in depth in a minute. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, she's like bobbing and weaving in and out of these buildings. Nick comes up behind her and smashes her face against one of the pillars. It's cement. So Libby is knocked out cold, okay? Mm-hmm. Nick slash Jonathan drags her into a mausoleum. The next thing Libby knows, she wakes up inside of a coffin. Yes. I think this is especially cruel because just a little background. So these are called oven tombs in New Orleans. Essentially, not each person has their own tomb. Each family has their own tomb. And so what happens is it gets so hot in New Orleans. They leave you there for a year and a day. You just turn to ash and stuff. And then when the next person needs to be buried in your family, they put them on there and then they do the same. So essentially it's summertime at this point. And so when he puts her into this coffin, you can tell this girl is roasting. Her face is flushed. 
It's very hot in there. He put her in an actual casket. There's a corpse underneath her. She's on top of a corpse. So aside from the terrifying fact that she's in a coffin, she's in a coffin Mm -hmm. with a dead body. And then also, if it wasn't for the lighter that she just happened to have in her pocket, she wouldn't be able to see anything because it was pitch black. Yeah. This is terrifying. Uh, It's one of my worst nightmares. But you know what? Girl has a mission and she's not going to let a tiny little thing like being essentially buried alive stop her. She can't open the coffin though. Like she tries and these things are very heavy. These lids, like why are these lids so heavy? Are they scared of zombies. the dead people? Oh, they're scared of zombies. Yeah, they're very heavy. She can't seem to open it. She does still have the gun that she took from the parole mm-hmm. officer on the ferry. Yes. So what she does is she looks for the latches And she peels apart some of the upholstery on the inside to find the seam. And then she just shoots a few rounds. She shoots open the latches and manages to get out of this coffin. To me, I don't know, like I love this next scene because it's her, Libby, walking down a street in New Orleans and she looks a hot mess. She's covered in dust from like the corpse that she was just buried with. She's bleeding from the head and she has this look in her eye like she is going to scorch the earth. Listen, Nick might have thought that was the end, but this is far from the fucking end for Libby. Listen, Mm -hmm. she did not skip parole for this to be the end, okay? She did not spend seven years in prison for this to be the end. She just so happens, I don't know how this lined up perfectly, but you know, plot reasons. For plot reasons, Libby just happens to walk past her parole officer who's like in this little like alleyway. He yanks her and pulls her in there. At this point, the parole officer has been doing some digging into Jonathan Devereaux. Did I say it right? Yes. Oh my gosh, finally. So he's been doing some digging and he's starting to believe Libby that this guy is actually her her husband who's supposed to be Uh dead. The thing about the scene is that when the parole officer pulls her off the street, he grabs her and he says, it's over. And she collapses and starts sobbing a second before she was looking enraged and a second later she's sobbing. And it just made me think about how like rage is really just sadness. It's yeah, it's just sadness directed differently. It's like helplessness and sadness. So is maybe rage just what happens when you don't feel sadness? When you can't, when I think it happens when your brain is protecting you from feeling all of the pain, like your brain is protecting you because the pain would paralyze you. So the pain doesn't go away. So it has to be outwardly directed. We are philosophers. What can we say? Anyways, so (laughs) now we go to the parole officer. He walks into Jonathan's hotel. Jonathan's in the lobby and the parole officer says, I have good news. It'll just take a minute. Jonathan reluctantly agrees. So they go to Jonathan's office and he's like, I started thinking maybe this Libby woman was telling the truth about you being her ex-husband. So I had them pull Nick Parsons' driver's license photo from Washington State. And this is the photo that came up. The pro officer shows Jonathan a photo of this older man that is clearly not Jonathan. Jonathan is relieved. Easy mistake. And then... Parole officer says, then I thought that must be a pretty common name. And I was right. There was six. And then he pulls out another picture and says, this was the third one. Jonathan just immediately breaks character and says, I always hated that picture. 
this is the smoking gun, right? The parole uh-huh. officer is like, I got you. You faked your death. You framed your wife. Well, Nick says, what do you want? And the parole officer says, I want a million dollars. Nick says, I'm going to need a couple of days. And the parole officer says, no, I want it tonight. And he's like, I can't just get you a million dollars tonight. And parole officer pulls out his phone to make a phone call. Nick says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. I have $100,000 in the safe. I can give it to mm-hmm. you tonight and then get the rest to you. Prosser agrees. And then he goes, we have another issue. Your wife is going to be a problem because she's not going to stop. She's not going to stop. Even if they put her back in jail, she knows you're alive now and she's not going to stop. And Jonathan says, oh, don't worry about it. I took care of that problem. She won't be a problem anymore. I took care of it. Let's just say that problem is buried. Yeah. Then Libby comes walking through the door in the back. Nick is confused. He's tray confused. Tray confusion. Obviously, this was a setup. And so Mm -hmm. now Libby and the parole officer get to do their villain monologue, which essentially is like, oh, hey, guess what, Nick slash Jonathan? We are framing you for murder. And then the parole officer plays the recording that he just took of Nick saying that she won't be a problem anymore and that that problem is buried. She goes, sounds really convincing when they find my fingerprints and hair in your car that's been burned. The professor says, you know, taped confessions are kind of hard to dispute. Yeah. So they're saying we are framing you for murder, which I thought was like awesome. Do you know what I mean? Like what an Una reverse card. This is the ultimate Una reverse card. You framed me for murder. I'm framing you for murder. Yeah. She's like, I don't want you dead, Nick. I want you to suffer like I did. But she has a gun. She has a gun drawn on him right now. And she tells him about the double jeopardy thing. Pro officer goes, as an ex-law professor, I can tell you that she's right. Yeah, Libby's feeling really powerful right now as she's holding this gun to Nick. But Libby tells him, like, I don't want to kill you. I just want to know where my son is. So really, this whole plan of framing him for murder is really just collateral. Like, tell me where my son is. I don't think Libby really cares about revenge, which honestly is a little disappointing at this point, considering everything she went through, considering he framed her for murder. She spent seven years in prison and he literally tried to kill her and she is willing to walk away from there without revenge. And I I don't get it. Could it be me? I can't relate. Can't relate, girly. Parole officer and Libby are gloating at this point because they feel like they have this perfect plan. And Nick actually admits to Libby where her son is. He's at some boarding school in like where, Georgia? Yeah, he's at State Album School for Boys in Georgia. And so parole officer and Libby are too busy gloating to notice that Nick slash Jonathan pull a gun from his desk. He pulls a gun and he shoots the parole officer. There's a scuffle that ensues because the parole officer was shot in the shoulder. Libby falls to the floor. She's scurrying away, trying to hide. The parole officer starts fighting. He gets back up and he starts fighting Nick. The parole officer gets thrown to the floor again and Nick has the gun drawn on him Nick thinks Libby's down at this point, but she still has her gun. She gets up and she does, in fact, kill Nick. She shoots him several times. I imagine that Libby and the parole officer are going to say that it was the parole officer who killed Nick slash Jonathan. Because Libby's not supposed to have a gun as a felon, although you could argue that shouldn't apply to her because she shouldn't be a felon. I think that it would probably be safest if they just say, oh, yeah, it was the parole officer. Yeah, I really liked the idea of her faking her own death and sending Nick to prison. I think that would have been such good revenge. I think so, too. But again, like I said, I would have killed him. 
I already did the time for it. This is that thing I told you about in movies where they can't make the good guy kill the bad guy in cold blood. They have to make it Mm. look like self-defense. You know, it's like Libby could only kill Nick when he was about to kill the parole officer. If you think about it, killing Nick would always be self-defense for her because he would always be coming after her. No argument there. However, the self-defense claim only works if you're like actively being threatened. If Nick died on the boat, Angie would still be alive. Let's not forget here, the biggest piece of trash in this movie is Angie because Angie betrayed her best friend Mm -hmm. by sleeping with her husband, stole her son that her friend trusted her with, Uh took him far away and never intended on having Libby see her son again or talk to her son again. She was complicit in helping her best friend's husband fake his death. So not feeling too bad for Angela, TBH. No, she's where she belongs. So the police come to the hotel. The parole officer gets loaded up into the ambulance. The parole officer told her that he's going to get her a full pardon. Yeah. Because at this point, there is proof that she was falsely imprisoned and all this stuff. So her name should be cleared. Now she doesn't have to pretend to be dead or any of that. She gets to go find her son. But what about all the crimes she committed after that? Do those not count? I know, like the breaking and entering, the she still has she has a little bit of a legal struggle ahead of her. Like the two, three, four, five cars she destroyed. Yes. Um, all the destruction of other property. When you're Ashley Judd, the law plays out differently than when you're like someone else. You know, that's fair. That's fair. She has phenomenal eyebrows, by the way. She does. That's like the one impression she left on me as a child is that her eyebrows are what I believe Angel's eyebrows look like. Like if I ever met an angel, I think their eyebrows would look like Ashley Judd's. I don't think angels would have eyebrows. Oh my God. Really? Those are called demons, Courtney. (laughs) Demons would not have eyebrows. I don't think angels would have any body hair. They're just smooth all over. They would be humanoid, but completely hairless. Yes. Do they have teeth? They don't need teeth, so they probably wouldn't have teeth. They don't have teeth. So angels wouldn't need teeth, and they also probably wouldn't need ears or eyes. They would just need mouths to communicate. So they would just be like this one toothless hole to communicate like, God loves you. And you're like screaming like, "Ah!" (laughs) That's why they say, do not be afraid. You're making Jesus angry again. (laughs) <laughs> Two episodes in a row. I'm sorry, Jesus. So yeah, so it it seems like there's a, a happy ending for mm-hmm. Libby. Like she gets to go to Georgia and find her son and the parole officer is with her, which makes me wonder if like they're together now. Because why is he with her? I think they're just friends. Okay. I ain't going to be friends with Ashley Judd. Better watch out, Mr. Rose. You got competition. So they go to the boarding school. Libby's son is playing soccer when they get there. And she's Mm -hmm. just waiting on the sidelines. And at halftime, he sees her. And she sees him. And he kind of runs over. And they just stare at each other for a minute. And she goes, do you know who I am? And he says, yeah. They told me you were dead. She's like, no, I'm not. But I have bad news about daddy. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't say that. But it's crazy because you're so right. This little boy grew up thinking his mom died. And now his dead mom is coming up and being like, I'm alive. But your dad, uh, not so much. Like Your dad is actually actually gone. I'm alive, but your dad's dead. Isn't the little boy played by the same kid from the 
I see dead people movie? No. Are you sure? Haley Joel Osment? No, he's played by Spencer Treat Clark. Oh, never mind then. Very similar. Very similar. They do look kid. very similar. Haley Joel Osment was like, there could only be one. There could only be one. Okay, anyways. That's where our movie leaves us. The teapot is empty for today. Don't worry, Murray's brewing it on the way. We'll be back next week with another episode. See you next time. Bye.